Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. ATF Al-Wazir. What a fun, beautiful connection to women, to mothers, to activists, to women who wrestle with mental health. Atiyaf is noted for her participation in the Yemeni revolution. She documented the events on her blog and co-founded Support Yemen, which is a storytelling collective. Her articles have been published in many outlets that you know about, like The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Open Democracy, Fair Observer, and Al Jazeera. She's also the co-author of Change Square, which is a photo book on Yemen's revolution. She's currently working on a novel about female sexuality, identity, and healing, and a children's book on resilience. And our conversation weaved in and out of all of these experiences, but one of the things that I know Atiyaf has written about was that when a country has been war-torn, that we don't want to just think of people as refugees. And we had the most connected conversation about Yemen, what they eat, her favorite food, how she dresses, her favorite rituals. And this is what Sidewalk Talk is all about, humanizing people and empowering them to tell their story rather than me telling her story. And I cannot wait for you to hear Atiyaf Awazir. So Atiyaf Awazir, I scoped you out. I actually heard about your work in a TEDx conversation here in Heidelberg that I was having. And I kind of found you online and, and found some of your writings. And I thought, wow, this is a woman that I would really like to be in dialogue with and listen to to help me widen my embrace to a part of the world that, that I have to be frank, I don't know a ton about the Middle East. I don't know a ton about Yemen. And I thought that our dialogue could maybe help stretch us open a little bit. So thank you, first of all, for being here, because I know you're in demand and yeah. it means a lot. But tell me a little bit about who you are and, and what you're doing in the world. Sure. Um, well, first, thanks, uh, Tracy, for having me. I'm really, I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Um, you know, this question is always hard for me to answer. Like, who are, who are you? I know, right? It's a very, it's a very hard It's question. weird. Yeah, I don't know how to describe myself uh, often. And, you know, I, I actually had, I have a hard time writing like a bio, for example, because I, I've done many different things in my life and I identify, uh, I have many identities, I would say. And yeah. so it's, it's often very hard for me. But, I mean, in a summary, um, at the moment, I'm uh, writing and I'm trying to use my writing for activism and to tell stories of 
uh, untold stories, often stories that are not necessarily in the mainstream media. Uh, I've done, you know, uh, research. I continue to do that also. Um, and I travel often to uh, mainly the Middle East and North Africa, working on um, issues of gender, uh, the intersection of art and politics, um, mainly. Yeah. So in addition to that, you have a, a private life. I get that this is a public <laughs> conversation, but what else informs? So these are all the sort of work things that you do. Yes. And then in your day-to-day life, what part of the world do you live in? Do you get up and drink coffee or tea? Ah. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm currently based in uh, Brussels. Uh-huh. I moved here in uh, August. Okay, recent. uh, recently. yeah. And before that, I was living in, we were living in uh, Lille in northern France. Mm-hmm. Before that, in Tunis, in Tunisia. Before that, in Yemen. And before that, in Egypt. And before that, in the U.S. And so I was born in uh, Sana'a, Yemen. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what's most on your heart these days, because I get that your identity has evolved. But to bring me into today, what's, what's resting on your heart right now as, a, as a, a woman, activist, artist, researcher, and I would say political activist? Um, you know, I... I think that the thing that often, I don't know, occupies my mind lately is the situation in Yemen. Yeah. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm, it's partially because I think I was born there, so there's a, there's a connection there, obviously. Uh, partially my family history uh, as well. Uh, and, and another part is when I lived there, I really, really connected with the place at mm. a very, very deep level. And um, with the people, with the architecture, with the food, um, I, I just really loved being there. And when I left, I left in a very sudden way. It was uh, early, uh, it was January, late January 2015. And the, the situation was worsening. And one of the airports had closed. And my husband's called me and we were discussing and he said, listen, you know, you might close the airport in the capital and you'll be stuck. You need to leave. And so within like a couple of hours, I was on a plane out, you know, leaving the country. I didn't take my suitcase and, and I didn't even say bye to any of my, my friends uh, and family, just the people that were with me at the time. And on the plane, I felt really ashamed. You know, I just, mm. I felt a sudden, I don't know. You know, sadness, one, for leaving everybody behind, and shame that I had that privilege, that I could just leave immediately and just say, oh, bye, guys. Mm-hmm. And so that stayed with me. That guilt really, really stayed with me. I, uh, we were living in, yeah, I, I, was, uh, I, lived, I moved to Tunis at the time. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I went, you know, I, I felt guilty if I'm at, at a restaurant or guilty if I'm grocery shopping, guilty when I had electricity because they, weren't, they didn't have it at the time. And I thought I would go back, but then um, two months later, the air, airstrike started. Mm-hmm. And a week after that, I found out I was pregnant. So there was no way I was, I was going back, you know, with, with that situation. And so I think that really pushed me. Um, I mean, for a while, I was just frozen. I, I just was like, I drowned myself in this, like, in this guilt and this self-pity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then my, my, when my, our, neighbor, our former neighborhood in the, in the old city of Sana'a, was bombed 
and our neighbors were killed. That really impacted me a lot. And my cousin in, in Yemen sent me a, a WhatsApp a message with three jokes. And I, I knew that was his way of trying to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. And I, it hit me then that, you know, he was the one living the war and I was out, yet I was the one kind of that closed myself off in this self-pity, right? And, I, and it also hit me that people are coping in different ways in the country. Mm-hmm. But I was just, I had this narrow vision of only looking at the terrible images, you know? And of mm-hmm. course, it's, it's really, really bad. But there is so much life that happens even during war. So much resilience, so much joy. Uh, you know, and even in tragedy, humor is still present. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, at that, that moment, I kind of started to look at things differently. And that's what I've been trying to do now is kind of tell people not to, let's not pigeon ourselves. It, you know, when you, when you just label people, or label a country as, you know, this is the worst place on earth, people start to believe it. The more you say it, mm-hmm. the more they become that, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I'm really hearing the real human impact on you, both of privilege, but guilt. And what comes to mind is, it's kind of what Brene Brown has said, that we, get, we feel guilty, that there's something healthy about feeling guilty because it means that we're human. And I can imagine when I put myself in your shoes, Atif, that my guilt would come from, this is my home. Yeah. Right? If it weren't my home, I wouldn't feel guilty or I wouldn't feel as guilty. But what I'm hearing you talk about, you used to talk about your neighbors and architecture and food. This is your home. Right. This isn't yeah. a, a place on a map that we that I may see in the news, and I don't have the same association with. And um, yeah, I just feel really with you in the intensity of you coming to safety, and how how you're metabolizing that for yourself. It sounds like what you're doing is you're turning it into widening the accuracy of the stories that come out of Yemen. Is that am I getting that right? Yeah. I mean, you know. Even in the diaspora, I think war follows people. Yeah. And so even if you're safe physically, emotionally, it's really hard because like you said, it is home and and you're watching it. You know, you're watching the the places you love being destroyed. You're watching your people that you love living in fear and you have nothing, you can't do anything about it, right? So you feel this extreme sense of helplessness and that's really, and, and, and a sense of, where do I belong? You know? Yeah. Um, so it's in a, in a way it's, it's really, really hard. Um, but the only thing I think we can control in this kind of situation is not to let our memories be kind of hijacked by, by all this blood, because at the end of the day, the war will end maybe in five years, maybe in 10, someday it will, we know, you know, that from history, mm-hmm. it will end. And, and the Yemen I lived is still there in, in essence, you know, and, and it's hard. It's hard to really keep that hope alive or that these memories. But for me, the more I write about them, that's how I, I'm able to remember, you know, to, to really kind of, uh, I don't know, challenge the mainstream and say, this is my resistance. You will not make me forget the Yemen I lived, you know? 
It brings to mind uh, an African-American colleague of mine who said to me, you know, my joy in being happy in the midst of injustice is an act of resistance as well. Yeah. I, Not to Pollyanna or sugarcoat, which I think sometimes we do too much, especially yeah. in American culture. But she said, no, I don't talking about that kind of joy, but that I can hold the, the I can stretch my arms wide to the shadow and the light at the same time, because when I do, my embrace is even wider. And I thought that was really beautiful. I, and I, I completely agree with that. I mean, and I, I think it's just the world is so chaotic. I don't know if it's always like this or just because we're living it, you know, but yeah. we feel that it's just getting worse and worse and things are really bad. And I think it's quite revolutionary to try and think, to look at things a different way. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, it's not, it's not easy, you know, especially since I, I'm not sure you're, I mean, you, you are the psychoanalyst, but maybe, I don't know if we're hardwired for negativity. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, what we are. Just, yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know, because I feel like we're drawn to that, right? So it's very hard. It's, a ch- it's my challenge to say, okay, you know what, let's try and look at things differently because I, I wasn't, I didn't always think this way, you know? Um, but I think recently in the last couple of years, I, I've started to realize that, you know, life is, is a balance. It's, it's a balance of joy and gloom. And it's, it's, I used to wish every, you know, uh, I don't know, now we're, you know, January, every New Year's, this year will be better. But no, of course, I'm going to have, you know, very sad moments and I will have joyful moments and that's just life. Yeah, but, but I think it's also important not to focus on one, only one thing. Yeah. And I, I think I did that when I participated in Yemen's revolution in 2011. And I was really filled with the hope, um, like everyone else around me, because it was very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Like all, everything we saw, the, the way people got to come to, came together, the fact that people stayed camped out for one year, over a year, actually. And we were, you know, people were making art, singing, dancing, uh, uh, book clubs were held, uh, literacy classes, because we have a very high illiteracy rate, especially for women. So, you know, there were literacy, free literacy classes. There were just so many activities. And I, I wanted to, I was focusing on that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a bit naive because I didn't want to also talk about, oh, what are the possibility of failure? And the, on the other hand, you had the mainstream media only looked at the possibilities of, the, of failure and almost like it's inevitable this is going to fail you know mm-hmm. and I think both are wrong if you only focus on one but I but I think what's missing really from the narrative today is a discourse of hope it's, it's very much missing from the story and that becomes we don't get the entire picture if that if we only focus on one side mm. yeah I'm just taking in all these pieces there. I, I feel so much as I'm listening to you, I can feel your heart and how there's still so much here, which is totally understandable. I, I, you know, I, you know, so I, what I didn't tell you about myself before I became a therapist, what I studied was political science. Mm-hmm. And what I often think about when we are able to get to a people to, to, to get them to be in such a mind state that there is no more hope then there's also um, no more democracy or, or, or no more people, right? There's just the, the 
the the powers that the ruling powers that be then have greater capacity to continue to control right and so even the hopelessness becomes another political tool you know yeah i i, I completely agree i mean i studied also i also studied political science. You, you studied international relations at american <laughs> university <Yeah. laughs> so I, I completely i i know i know where you're coming from and and um and I do, I exa that's exactly it, you know, I mean, the reason why I would go to a protest is because I have hope that this might change something. But if that's, you know, if, if you reach a point, which happened to me after the revolution, and I felt completely hopeless, I felt, you know, I was exactly what dictators wanted, extreme, like an apathet apathetic person, that's it. You know, I, don't, I didn't believe in any of these things anymore. Mm. Um, and and now I've I've kind of come back, and I I think maybe I'm more a bit more realistic about certain things, but um, and I and not realistic, but I, I think now I, I believe that change comes in many different forms, and there are many ways to for people to help promote change, and it you know, and each person will bring something different to that process. Mm. Um, and, and, and that's why I kind of, I used to write a lot of like political analysis and, and more academic writing. And I've, I've since switched kind of from that to more, um, I would, to fiction and storytelling. And it's not a critique of the other, you know, forms. It's just where I am in, in life. I think that makes sense. So it sounds like that's, you just said change comes in many forms and it sounds like, well, one of the forms could be policy analysis, but then another yeah. form is the storytelling. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm curious as I listen to you, I've heard you really expose us all to what is an, an inner revolution because you went from apathy to hopefulness again. And I'm curious because I, I identify in some ways there's a lot going on in American politics yes. today. Um, yeah. Uh, how, what is, what has been your process? How have you been able to enlist your own resources to move from that apathy to a place of a, what I would call effective hopefulness <laughs> rather than that mamby-pamby poly yeah, hopefulness? Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think, I mean, when I was, I mean, I fell in a depression, I would say 2013, 14, I can't remember. And, and really major burnout. And I just stepped away from, yeah, from everything I, I used to do. And, and unfortunately that meant um, some, also some friendships ended because a lot of my friends were, you know, we were all doing the same thing. And once you decide I can't do this anymore, not everybody gets why that you need to just, you know, take a step back. Um, so that also was, was very hard and made me uh, quite bitter for some time. But um, I, I mean, I think what happened also, and this, this might be a bit too personal, but I don't mind sharing it. But after, after I had my first, uh, Lilia, my, my daughter, Hmm. Um, I went also through very, very difficult time um, emotionally. And it was the first time that I was, I had to face some personal childhood trauma. 
that mm. I had completely avoided and really buried very, very, very deep. Mm-hmm. And I think part of my, um, because when I, was part, when I was part of the revolution, it wasn't just, I wasn't just part of the revolution, it, it became my life. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, morning, nights, everything. And even my relationship with my husband was, um, even though he was, you know, part, you know very much encouraging and, and very much part of it, we, he still wanted like, what every other relationship wants, you know, let's have some intimate time, let's go out once in a while. But I just, you know, I was completely immersed in the revolution. And in hi- hindsight, I now think I was part of me. I, of course, believed in everything, and I never regretted it till this day. I don't regret my participation. Um, but, I, but I do think that part of that complete immersion was uh, I was running away from, my, from facing my own trauma. You know, I was, oh, we need to fix the world, or we need to fix this country, but I, I'm not going to look internally. And my child kind of having my child for some reason kind of, you know, forced me to do it. And so I, I, um, I found an amazing therapist that helped me through that period. Mm-hmm. And I was able to, yeah, I was able to kind of articulate, find some words for what happened and, and deal with it and speak to my parents and tell my siblings for the first time. So that was very healing. But I still had other issues, you know, about the war, about the guilt afterwards. And, uh, and that was, I think, that took me a while to really understand and reflect on. And only through writing, I think through writing uh, and reading and, you know, continuing therapy, uh, did that help. And, and, and I think it's a process. I mean, uh, till this day, you know, I don't think it's an easy fix. I don't think it's something overnight that changes. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's something that evolves and at least for me, and, uh, it just, it, it, it took a lot of different things. And, and, uh, at the same time, I was only focused on the kind of the emotional and mental aspect of it mm-hmm. and not, and not my body. And more, more recently starting, I think two years ago is when I said, and I, I realized, oh, wait, you know, everything's connected. And mm-hmm. I realized, ah, I'm def- I have a lot of vitamin deficiencies, make me fatigued and tired, you know, could also lead to, you know, or emphasize certain uh, anxieties. And, and I started doing, you know, Tai Chi and acupuncture, like just trying to say it's okay to take time for yourself and it's okay for you to recharge and because if I'm, if I'm not okay, I can't really help anybody. And if I'm not, I, 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 was, I reached a point where I just saw the world that's so ugly. And, and you can't really help anybody if you think that of the world. You're not, mm. you're not you're, what kind of beauty are you going to bring to it? What kind of change if, if that's all you see? And, and so I'm, I, I'm actually glad I stopped when I was feeling that way, because I don't think I would have helped anybody or myself. Well, there's so much that I want to say. First of all, one of the things when someone, I, I do vulnerability differently now because mm-hmm. I'm more aware of privilege in the role of sharing vulnerabilities. And so I'm going to say me too, so that you're not out on the limb of vulnerability all alone. <laughs> I have had to confront all the same things in running this project as well. My Mm. own trauma that might have informed why I sat on the sidewalk. So I just want to say, I'm right there with you. Me too. Okay. Thank you. Um, 
And then the second powerful thing is, I think that you probably are inspiring a lot of activists that are listening, because what I hear you saying is, I turned what might have been less effective hopefulness into more effective hopefulness when I was able to address the trauma that was driving my activism. Yes, yes. Because yeah. now my activism is, is allowing me to be effective in how I generate hopefulness in the world rather than depleting me and potentially setting me up for another episode of sort of discharge or disengagement or depression, I'm now setting up a foundation for my life so that I can remain effectively hopeful for the whole of my life. Yes, uh, yes, that's, uh, I guess that's a really good way of, uh, of summarizing that. Yeah, I guess it is about effective hopefulness. And um, it, it's interesting because my, my parents, I come from a very hyper, maybe I can use that word, political family. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, my, my father and uncles had to were imprisoned uh, for political reasons in Yemen at a very young age uh, because of their father, so my grandfather's um, participation in another revolt, a previous revolt. And, uh, and I, uh, later on, my grandfather was actually beheaded. And my, my, my uncles, really, and my, my mom had her other, you know, uh, went through also other, um, I think, dramatic events. And, and my family, I think maybe it's generational, maybe it's cultural. They just never talk about what happened, right? Mm. Never. They only, they, they, you know, we know stories, the funny stories that happened in prison. Like we, you know, I used to ask him to show us how he used to write secret letters with lemon juice and water, for example. Mm. Um, you know, things like that they shared, but they never really shared how they felt. And I, when I was going through this phase of, um, you know, just aversion to politics. It also meant aversion to my family's history because they are very political. And my father couldn't really understand why I stopped. And he was quite disappointed. And uh, I asked him, are you happy with your life right now? Right now, as a, you know, I don't know, he's, I think he was 79. Are you, do you, when you think back, were you happy or are you happy now? And this question just seems very strange to him. He didn't mm. really know how to answer that. And, and he said, you know, I'm happy with my sacrifices. Mm. And I just thought, okay, I, I understand that. But I also, I also want to, I mean, towards the end, I mean, he, he's still quite active in a different way, not, you know, uh, through he also is a, a writer, so he he writes. Um, but what what's interesting about him is he never kind of I don't know if he ever went through what I went through. You know this phase. He just remained hopeful, but till this day. But he's also filled with anxiety, mm. so so much anxiety for everything, and um, and and I think part of our if we want to maintain this. For a long time and we want to also enjoy this world that's that has some very beautiful elements to it we have to look internally so that we're not just living every day super anxious super tired super fatigued maybe some, for some people they can do it until they're 80 like my father but i'm not sure that of the quality of that life and i'm not sure that's for everybody i mean mm-hmm. i don't think i could have maintained yeah. that 
Well, I'm hearing that his alignment with sacrifice and duty um, became how he defined happiness. But I think yeah. that however a culture defines duty and sacrifice, I think in, in my country, duty and sacrifice is defined by how much you earn. Mm. But none of them are about what our internal structure, our, our soul. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to go really woo-woo for a second and say what our soul is really calling us to do. Yeah. And I do think that um, that does lead to the anxieties and mental health issues that seem to be a global phenomenon. They, they seem yeah. to strike every culture. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. So um, I just could go sit and have a long lunch with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I know in, in reading some of your writings, I know how important this idea of broadening the stories of Yemen are to you. And I also know that you've been really active. You, you, you know, you're, you're kind of speak from the place of women from Yemen. I, can I, I'd love to maybe ask you some of the other stories. I'd like to hear about what Yemen was like when you were coming up or what's your, maybe your favorite moment or your favorite cafe or your favorite piece of architecture. Um, would you be willing sure. to share a couple yeah. of those, those joyful stories with, yes, with of, us? Of course. Um, let's see. I mean, I love one thing that I find unique is the women's afternoon gatherings. Men have them too, but the women's gatherings are so, I don't know, they're just so beautiful. So every, every day um, after lunch, and often uh, it's the women of the house that unfortunately still only make the lunch. Uh, and, you know, wake, they wake up early, they're, they're tired in the morning, they do all this work. Some go to the office, some work at home, and then they have to come back home and make lunch for everybody. But after lunch, they just they go, take their shower, put on some, uh, you know, uh, pick a nice outfit. And no matter what that happens that day, they will have to go to this afternoon gathering. And it's sometimes at a friend's house. Sometimes it's a wedding. Sometimes it's, a, um, you know, someone maybe had a baby, so they go to her house. Um, it's some, any celebration, right? And just in these gatherings, they, they talk about everything. There's no taboo subject, right? Everything. It's the, the most interesting conversations. And actually, I love just sitting and listening there. So I think you would have loved it. <laughs> I know I would. Because you just hear all these different stories. And, um, and I think that's their way of, that's their me time, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and women who have kids, I've been thinking about it now because of my child. Is they bring the kid along and then the, kid, the kids play together and there's often a 15-year-old that's watching them. So it's like baby, free babysitting while you're yeah. hanging out with your friends. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just, and I, I just love that every single day, no matter what, they're going to do this. You know, even, even during times where um, there was conflict. I, I, I mean, I remember specifically one night where there were, we, I, was, I woke up at 3 a.m. because of explosions and the, the clashes lasted until noon. But that day it was my cousin's wedding and I, I had assumed they would postpone it, but they didn't. Hmm. And when I went, I was shocked to see so many women, uh, you know, dressed in like very, I don't know, yellow and red and beaded clothes. And I decided to put on black because I was in mourning over the situation. 
and uh, uh, and I really, in my self righteousness, I really judged them. Like people are dying, and you're partying. I was so, you know. But then, someone someone um, forced me to get up on and dance, hmm. and um, and I I don't know. I I got in this like in this zone, and. Um, I remember I, I finally understood, and I, I, I love uh, this poet, and I understood his, his words, Jalaluddin Rumi, and he said, um, if I remember correctly, dance, if you're, dance in the middle of the fighting, uh, dance in your blood, dance if you're perfectly free. Mm. And I finally, you know, I really understood that. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I just, I can't, I think that's, that's what's really amazing about, I don't know, being in these moments that change your perception is that you go in thinking something and then you, yeah, you're, you change your mind about it. And I think if we all, since we're talking about listening, that's part, that's a big part of listening. I think if, if you, we try to go, I don't know. Well, I went in with a judgment, but if we just try and really believe that there are other realities and not immediately judge people, maybe we'll be better listeners. Mm. But um, yeah, those are some examples. I, I love the food. It's just really, really good. Well, so tell me about the food. What did you uh, eat? <laughs> so, there's a lot of rice, but different kinds of rice. So it's like rice marinated with uh, onions and garlic and uh, um, tomatoes and uh, um, pine nuts and different, kind, different kinds of nuts and um, rice with meat, rice with chicken, uh, fish is so good. Mm. Um, there's, uh, there's my favorite dish is this, um, it's called shifut and it's, um, uh, yogurt based, uh, it's yogurt, mint, um, cilantro, uh, garlic. And it's just with this kind of, uh, a bread that looks like, um, French crepes, you know, very thin, mm-hmm. but doesn't taste different. It's not, it's not, it's savory. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so simple, but it's so, it's so nice. And then with pomegranate on top, mm. it's so fresh, you know, for summer, it's perfect. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite. And then the tea with milk and like four different spices. It's kind of like a chai, Indian chai tea, which probably Yemenis got it from India. Maybe I'm not sure. But um, yeah, and a lot of the food, we have these, these spices that we mix. We have seven spices that we mix and we put in almost, yeah, a lot of the dishes. So I try and make it here, you know, in Belgium. So the spices, I, I get fresh spices and then I grind them and I just put it in a, uh, in a Tupperware or something and just try and use it um, every time. And that mm-hmm. also transports me back, you know, just the smell of the food and it kind of, I introduce it. I introduced my daughter to the flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, well, she might yeah. remember some of it when she was in your belly too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just love, um, you know, it's funny as you're talking about food and then as you were describing the dancing scene from the wedding, I almost feel like I can smell it. Hmm. Like I can, I can, yeah. I can, I can kind of close my eyes. I have a grin on my face right now. And I'm like, oh, I can almost feel... Yeah. Like I, I, like I get a sense, right? Or I, I yeah. it's, it's very sweet. I don't, I don't know that I've talked to many of our guests about their food before. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's going to become a new trend. <laughs> oh, this is great. 
Listen, I, I know that I sort of scheduled for a set period of time and we're near the end of our conversation, although I could listen to you and, and sort of, I, I, I just want to say thank you for the earnestness of you being on a journey. I think it's easy for people that are academics or researchers to sort of have a fixed mm. idea about the world. But I hear what you're doing is something I guess I value, which is you're just evol- in, an, in a state of a, a real, I would say, high integrity evolution as a, as a human being. And I like people that are in places of high integrity <laughs> evolution as human beings. Like you're not you're not self you've moved out of that self-righteous place it feels like you're really in a place of righteous integrity and i i really admire that in listening to you thank um, you very much yeah um we have a little bit of a tradition um how we close the dialogue here at this on the sidewalk talk podcast which is i get out of the way and i let you speak directly to the 7000 volunteers that listen on sidewalks around the world and you're, you get to choose, you can offer them either words of wisdom or you can offer them a wish directly to them as mm. they go out in the world and they listen. Okay. Hmm. To think about this. I know as a writer, you're, pro- <laughs> you're probably, you're going to be p- particularly interested in what do I really want to say? <laughs> <laughs> no pressure though. <laughs> All right. And it's for people that are listening, right? The seven, the volunteers that are. It's the volunteers on the sidewalk. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do I just say it now? Sorry. You can just say it. Ah, okay. I think the one thing I will share with you or hope is that you move away from the idea of a, of a single label or single narrative and maybe try or accept that the uncertainty of the world and that people may have very different ideas of what the world would look like. And I think only then can we really, really listen mm. and, and good luck. It's, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing. Mm. Well, it's great. Letting go of that uncertainty. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Thank you so much. Thank this you. Was, very- it's a beautiful thing that you're doing in the world too. And I hope that you write a really beautiful fictional romance novel about Yemen sometime that I can read that includes food and dancing. I'm, I hope so too. It's on my list. So let's, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> well, congratulations on baby number two. And um, perhaps we'll be lucky enough to meet in the flesh. I live in Germany now. And, and so oh, not too far. traveling through Belgium, I will be sure and reach out to you. Yes, but please do. I would love to meet. All right, Atiyah, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from, and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.